if you will, open up your Bibles to John chapter 11. We'll be looking at the second half of that text today concerning the resurrection of Lazarus. Last week we looked at Jesus' interaction with, um, with Mary and Martha. And this week we're going to look at him as he actually raises Lazarus from the dead and kind of the fallout from that action as well. So before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help with his word. Lord Jesus, as we come again to pray, we ask that you would take your word, make it plain to us, teach us from it, convict us of our sin, those times when we would uh, manipulate your word to make it our own truth about how great we are. Help us to read from it how great you are and what you've done for us and how you're changing us and how you're making us more like you, how you have redeemed us from ages past, how you bought us with your own blood. Help us to see that. Help us to learn from it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as I read this text, um, as oftentimes is the case, I was drawn to a story from the uh, Fellowship of the Ring. And um, I have to actually resist every week to give you a token illustration. And I think it's been a little while, so I, I have one for you. And this has to do with Old Man Willow. It's a tree that they uh, encountered on their way to the village of Bree, the hobbits, and they've never really been outside the Shire, and here they are tackling these uh, strange things out in the wilderness. And so this party of hobbits is traveling through the Old Forest. That's what it's called, the Old Forest. And they come upon this tree that is called Old Man Willow, or at least they don't know that it's Old Man Willow yet. They'll learn that. But Old Man Willow is an evil tree. And this tree, as they come up to it, actually casts a spell on the hobbits and causes them to go to sleep and be drowsy and kind of be uh, not, not knowing where they are, kind of disoriented. And actually takes Mary and Pippin and traps them inside its trunk. And so Frodo and Sam uh, come up with the great idea that it would be a great thing to burn, to like make a fire, to scare the tree. Well, they begin to scare it, and then Pippin shouts out in a muted voice from inside the tree, he'll squeeze me in two if you don't stop. He says so. Obviously talking about the tree now talking to them. This is a fantasy novel, by the way. And so... Uh, Sam begins to try to put the fire out, and Frodo actually takes off running up the stream, screaming for help, hoping that someone can help them, thinking, why am I doing this? There's no one here, obviously. But it's then that they heard singing, and they saw this old man kind of traipsing through the forest in a bright blue coat, coat and large yellow boots, and he says he can help. Pretty interesting story. You haven't read both Phenomenal, by the way. Um, so I thought this story, I thought of this story because uh, this is what happens, or and because of what happens in the end of the story, because of these hobbits were having the life squeezed out of them. They were literally being squeezed to death. And I think, and as you, as you read this story concerning Lazarus, this grip that death has on Everyone, all humans, can be pretty stifling at times. Uh, sometimes it seems almost non-existent. 
We kind of forget about it. We kind of forget that death has this hold over us as we're going through our lives. But at other times, it seems to be extremely oppressive. And it seems to be everywhere we look and everything we read. Awful. And it's not just physical death. But as we look around us, as we read the news, as we look at the news stories that are coming across the uh, TV, we see spiritual death all around us. Our society is just withering away. Our families are continually under attack from this busy culture that we're in. Not really under attack from the outside so much, but under attack from our own temptations to kind of fall in line with this busy culture and to keep up with the Joneses, to jump on the merry-go-round, as it were. The love of money swirls all around us as well. With it brings death, destruction. We want rest and we want relief from this, and yet we sometimes live as if there's no relief in sight. But yet as Christians we know that there is, and his name is Jesus Christ. And so as we read this passage today, Jesus is going to deal with death, with real death, the death of his friend Lazarus. And you remember last week Lazarus had been dead for four weeks, or not four weeks, four days by this time that Jesus comes to see him. And Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus, were both very upset, understandably. And so in their sorrow, even Jesus, the God-man, weeps tears of anger and sorrow for his lost friend and for his lost children as the death that they were experiencing was all over. And he had a plan to conquer death, and we know that. And he would carry out that plan, and thanks be to God, he does that, but it's not going to be an easy road. And so in this passage, we're going to look at two points that demonstrate Jesus' power over death and the desire of evil then to suppress that truth and the salvation then that only our Lord Jesus Christ can offer. We're going to look at this in two points, the power over death and then the promise of salvation. And so with that, let's read the text together. Uh, John chapter 11, 38 through 54. Let's stand together as we read this text. John 11, 38 through 54. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by, the time, or by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Jesus lifted his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on the account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you have sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen straps and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him, and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and who had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. 
If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. The Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this on his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not only for the nation, or not for the nation only, but also to gather into one or into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day they made plans to put him to death. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Amen. This is God's word. Be seated. So first we'll look then at the power of death. Remember Jesus, at the beginning here is now as he's with Mary, and Mary comes to him weeping. Jesus, if you'd have just been here, Lazarus would be okay now. And remember he weeps with her his, over his friend and her brother. But he is in the tomb dead. And he's been there for four days. And remember we talked about the significance of that four days. That the Jewish people believed that the soul stuck around the body for like three days hoping for re-entry. And on the fourth day would leave. And so he was really dead by all accounts. And the people, remember they were amazed at the love that Jesus had for Lazarus and the sisters as he's demonstrating this compassion that he has. And it says that he's deeply moved. It said that in the text last week and in this text that we read today there in verse 38. Jesus was a very passionate man. And he oftentimes showed very strong emotions. And we've seen that several times in the book of John up to this point. Very strong emotions. His compassion that he felt was, was from the gut. His anger was very real, very felt. His sorrow was real. He felt real emotion. He wasn't afraid to do so. And I think just as an aside, it's, it's good to hear from time to time, because Jesus was an emotional man. And I think sometimes we go about our Christian lives and we go about our worship as very unemotional people. We can learn a lot, I think, sometimes from our charismatic brethren who, who show emotion when they worship. It's a good thing. And not to say that none of us do, because some of us do. I'm not very good at that sort of thing. But it's a good thing. Emotion is good, and it's right. Our Lord Jesus shows it here. We read a story about a very emotional moment where there are tears on the faces and people weeping loudly. And they were wishing that death wasn't a thing. But it is. And it has to be dealt with because there is an enemy. And it is right there in their midst. Death is right there in their midst. As is the one who came to deal with it. So again, Jesus, it says he is deeply moved. Remember this word was sorrow but also intermixed with anger, partly sorrow, partly angry, upset at the state of the world, the curse that is on the world. And so he goes to the tomb, and he directs Martha then to remove the stone. Jesus is obviously capable of removing a stone. He demonstrates that later in the text, as we read in the book. But 
he asks Martha to remove the stone. Again, who's now analyzed the situation because that's what Martha does and has thought it's best to leave it closed because dead people stink. Well, again, not talking back to her Lord. I don't think this is a lack of faith of, on Martha's part. She's just simply informing the Lord of, as the uh, what's going on. I totally relate with Martha, by the way, at this point. I think I've understood that more and more as I've studied this text. Uh, Jesus reminds her of her profession, right? Remember her profession yet from, from previous? You are the Christ. You are the Lord that has come. And he reminds her that you will see the glory of the Lord. And so they remove the stone. And then Jesus prays. Verse 42. 41 and 42. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on the account of the people standing around. That they may believe. That you have sent me. That they may believe. Here it is again. It's like in in the book of John like 10 or 15 times. Jesus prayed his prayer out loud so that the people may understand, again, this link between the Father and his Son, that they may know that Jesus Christ is not just Joseph's son, the carpenter, but he is the very Son of God. And then Jesus cries out to the tomb. And we've, we've seen this picture, we've seen this story on flannel board, we've heard this story our whole lives. I think we we might lose touch of what's actually going on here. Jesus is shouting into a tomb full of dead people. And he's talking to one of them. He shouts to Lazarus. He says, Lazarus, come out. And he did. That's pretty incredible. When I read this, I was immediately reminded of Genesis chapter 1. And you can turn there if you want to, to see it. But in Genesis chapter 1, what does it say over and over again? It starts there in verse 3. God said, let there be light. And there was light. It said, God created the moon and the stars. And so it was. He created the creeping things on the earth, and all the animals and the birds, and so it was. He created the waters, and so it was. He created the people, and so it was. When God speaks, when the Creator speaks, it becomes. It obeys. Every single time. Who can call the dead to rise? The one who speaks to nothing and it becomes something. That's who can cause that to happen. The Lord Jesus Christ is the creator of all things. He is the Lord over all things. He is the sovereign. And I love this in the text, that we get this detail. Lazarus come out. There in verse 43 and 44 it says, The man who died came out, and his hands and feet bound with linen straps, and his face wrapped in cloth. Remember, they would wrap their dead with these cloths, lots of them, pounds of them. And then they would they would also infuse these perfumes and different things so that the bodies wouldn't stink, so it wouldn't be that bad. And he says to the, the burial cloths, he says to these inanimate objects, unbind him 
let him go. And they do that. They obey. His hands and feet still bound in this linen, very much like this is what made me think of Mary and Pippin, trapped by the trunk of that old man Willow. Jesus says to them, unbind him, let him go, and they did that. This is incredible. This one who was born in Bethlehem, who was placed in a manger, he's also the one that speaks to death, and it becomes life. Death listens and obeys and is conquered by the Lord of glory, Jesus Christ. He had been undoing the curse the entire time his ministry, in his ministry. But here, we get a very real picture of what his ministry is about. Those who were dead are now alive. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2 with me. Let's pair these two passages together. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. Keep in your mind what we just read about Lazarus, about the dead, being dead for four days, having no responsiveness at all, if there was any doubt, coming out of the tomb. Now let's read this in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all were once in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. We were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. We were dead in our sins. So dead, in fact, that we didn't know. We went about our lives being sons and daughters of disobedience. And look there at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. You want to know about the great love with which he loved us? Read chapter 1. That's the great love with which he loved us. Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now get this. Remember, dead people don't walk out of tombs. So how are they delivered? How are dead men in their sins delivered? For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and obviously, the next part is true, right? And this, not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Dead men don't walk out of tombs by themselves. They can't do it. Dead men who are dead in their sins and their trespasses don't follow Jesus on their own. They can't do it. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. If Lazarus could have got up out of the tomb on his own, then he would have said, look at me, I conquered death. But he didn't do that. Jesus called him out of death. Jesus gets the glory. Jesus made him alive. Lazarus was dead, but he was no longer dead. The dead man in the tomb did not reach out to Jesus. Jesus and the other mourners there weren't waiting for the dead man's response. 
He didn't even remove his own burial clothes. Jesus did that for him. What can Lazarus say then? Think about this, brothers and sisters, as you consider your own response to this question. What can Lazarus say when someone says, how is it that you aren't dead anymore? There is no other answer. He can't say, well, being alive just made sense. I looked at all the evidence, and I was convinced that as a dead person, that being alive was much better. And so I became alive. He can't say that any more than an unbeliever can say, you know what, the evidence for Christ is really compelling outside of Christ's own interaction in his life, calling him out. Dead man, come out of the tomb. He was dead. Jesus Christ made him alive. He shouted for him to come out, and he did. The grave could not hold him because the grave has no authority over him. And so, Christian, how is it that death in this world, how can we make it to where death in this world doesn't phase us? How is it that we're able to have hope? Because Jesus Christ made us alive. That doesn't mean that we don't mourn. That doesn't mean that we don't experience pain and hurt in the face of death. Because we will. We talked about that last week. That is a part of life. We will experience hurt. We will experience pain. However, we aren't defeated by it. Because the Lord is Lord over it. The power of the gospel is for salvation is for victory over death. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15, and let's, let's be assured of this again. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 55 through 58. And this is what the Apostle Paul says about death. This is what the Holy Spirit had him write down concerning death. Death, look at 55, chapter 15, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So since we have victory, since we have this victory in Jesus Christ, let us be steadfast. Let us be immovable. Let us always be abounding in the work of the Lord. Our labor is not in vain. In him, what we do for the kingdom will last. And so secondly, then, we have the promise of salvation. And again, what does it say there in 45? Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. Now get this, if this isn't crazy. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Everyone who's there witnesses a man shout into a tomb, and a dead man come out and become alive, and only some of them believe. I can't explain it. However, our Lord explains it. Turn with me to Luke 16. Luke chapter 16. Verse 
starting at verse 19, and I'm not going to read this whole story. But we have here a parable of a rich man and a man who consequently is named Lazarus. Now again, I don't know if this is the same Lazarus. Uh, that'd be a fascinating study if you'd like to do that. I'd like to read it, but uh, I don't know if this is the same Lazarus. But this is the only person that has a name in any of Jesus' parables. So maybe this is the same Lazarus. But we have a parable of the rich man who doesn't have a name and Lazarus who does. And you guys know the story. The rich man is, is rich and Lazarus is begging and they outside his gates and they both go, they both die. The La- Lazarus goes to heaven. The rich man goes to hell and he's there begging that he can be delivered. He's there begging for just a drop of water. And then he begins begging that his relatives can hear the truth. And so look at verse 27. I'll read from there. And he said, then I beg you, father, to, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, concerning his brothers, this is what Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. I mean, that makes sense, right? If someone was to be raised from the dead, we would all be convinced, right? I mean, if someone, oh, well, that, that would convince everyone, right? We would think that. What does Abraham say? He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Wow. If they're not going to listen, if they're not going to hear the words of Scripture and be convinced and be cut to the heart, then neither are they going to be convinced at all if a dead man walks out of a tomb. And that's exactly what we see here, right? It fits perfectly. They wouldn't believe Scripture, so they don't even believe that someone is raised from the dead. And so you have this meeting of the minds with the chief priests and the Pharisees here, and they say, well, what are we to do? If he keeps this up, everyone's going to believe. You know, this is a real suppression of the truth here. And this shouldn't be any surprise to us. We read all through the Scriptures that, that people are going to suppress the truth that they're going to exchange the truth for a lie. We can see this on our side of the truth because the Lord has made it plain to us, but they can't see it. Remember, Paul tells us in Romans 1, they'll exchange the truth of God for a lie. They'll believe that lie all the way to their deaths. What were they more afraid of? They were more afraid of Rome coming and taking their place or their probably their temple or their city. And so instead they wanted Jesus dead. And I love this. Caiaphas, he's one of he's the high priest that year. He pipes up as if he's got something very important to say. He's like, he's like, uh, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, and not the whole na- not that the whole nation should perish. And why did he say this? He was made high priest that year. Apparently, he made some sort of prophecy concerning Jesus. And now, and now to Caiaphas, that's starting to come to light. And what did he prophesy? That one should die, not the whole nation. 
and not for the whole for not for that nation only that Jesus would die for the nation but not for that nation only but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad so Caiaphas an unbeliever someone who wouldn't believe even if someone raised from the dead prophesies the substitutionary atonement of Jesus for his people pretty incredible what the lord does Again, not a new thing. We understand this to be true. We, re- we know the Old Testament speaks of this over and over again, that the Gospels have told us this up to this point over and over again. However, he's a lost person, but yet he correctly tells us about the works of Jesus Christ. And I find it fascinating. Again, this man knows the truth. He, he hears the truth. He's heard it, yet represses it as if it's a work of his own. It's incredible that Jesus would die for the nation, for those scattered abroad, that Jesus would die for the children of Israel and for those other ones who are Gentiles. Of course, this is a prophecy concerning this Messiah. And what did they do over and over up to this point? They asked him over and over again, are you the Messiah? They knew it. They missed the part about him being the Messiah because they were so excited about the part about him dying. How excited do you think that Satan must have been when he heard that Jesus was going to die? It reminds me a lot of the Chronicles of Narnia. I know you guys are familiar with that. When the witch and her minions drag Aslan off to be killed, as if they're doing some great act, as if they could have drug Aslan off against his will. They believe that they're doing this great and mighty thing. They believe that they have captured their archenemy and now they're going to have their way with him. However, Aslan knows something that they don't. He knows a secret concerning his own life, his own destiny. And the white witch holds no power over him that he didn't give to her first. And though he would die, he would soon thereafter rise from the dead and save his people from evil delivered them into this great time of prosperity. We love that story. That story is just telling us about this story, isn't it? These priests and these Pharisees must have thought they had Jesus Christ, the Lord of creation, the Lord over death, cornered, but it was Jesus who was going to have the last laugh. Because they put their plans to put him to death into play but it actually has no bearing over his fate because he's going to offer himself willingly for the sins of his people that they might be atoned for and that the curse of death might be lifted from them. And so in conclusion, we still feel that curse today. But ultimately, that that curse has no power over us because the one who has authority over it, thankfully, is on our side. And has made it so that we are on his side. And going back to my Lord of the Rings story, Pippin and Mary were definitely feeling the squeeze of Old Man Willow and this evil old tree in the old forest. However, even really old trees have an older master. And he came skipping along and singing with his big blue coat on and his big yellow boots, and his name was Tom Bombadil. It's a very fun name. And Tom was the master of the forest, and probably a whole lot more. And he sang, and when he sang, the forest 
and the animals obeyed him. And so he sang into the tree. The book says he literally put his face into the crack where these hobbits were and sang into the tree. And it let Mary and Pippin go because it listens to its master. It ultimately could have killed them, but it wasn't the master. It didn't get to decide. Tom Bombadil was the master. Death is not our master, brothers and sisters. Sin is not our master. The Lord Jesus Christ is, and he has victory over both of these foes. And so how do we live as if that's the case? We don't get caught up in the death of this world. That doesn't mean that we can't mourn, because we should mourn. And it is right to mourn. It is right to be sorrowful and angry for death and destruction in this world. That doesn't mean that they have to rule us. We need not be afraid of rulers. We need not be afraid of laws. Because the Lord, our God, is in charge. And he is in charge of our eternal destiny. We are here but a little while until he returns or until he calls us home. But until then, we should live as if our Lord has power over sin and death. And that they no longer have sting. And I think people will ask us. Because that should cause us to live differently. It should cause us to, to look differently. To speak differently. We should speak life into everything we do then. Our work. Our relationships. Our leisure even. They should be teeming with life. Constantly. Our conversations should leave people wanting more. They should say, I want what he has. I want what she has. We have life. And we have it abundantly in Jesus Christ. And then lastly, we should give glory to God in this. Because he deserves our worship. He deserves our praise. He deserves our loyalty. He deserves everything that we have. And so let us, brothers and sisters, live as if our Lord has broken the bonds of death. And as we share in that victory, let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would help us to do that. Oftentimes, we live as if we are still dead in the tomb, but you have called us out. You have removed our death rags. You have called us to new life. And you have called us then to speak life into other people. You have called us to speak the truth, to share the truth in love. And so help us to do that. Help us to not get caught up in the sorrow of this world, to mourn rightly, to be angry at sin and death, but also to worship the one who has victory over them and who has given us share in that victory. It's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.